Warning. We must love each other or perish. I'm wrong, you're wrong, he's wrong, she's wrong, they're wrong, we're wrong. You're wrong, you're wrong, I am wrong, we are wrong. Seriously, seriously, seriously wrong. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly sponsored by differentiating between the role an individual is playing in society and the individual's humanity in itself. Now, of course, your landlord, your boss, they're pricks to you, structurally. But the people within those roles, when they get home, they pet their dog, they hug their wives, their husbands, their children, they hope for a better future for everyone. And this isn't a contradiction. The reason it's not a contradiction is because the role is the problem. The role is what needs to be abolished. There's a lot of implications from this. And Elon Musk, you're not the head of a company. The people beneath you aren't to be ordered around. You're playing a specialized role within an ecosystem of individuals. And everything that you achieve as a company, your idea or not, is the result of a cumulative effort of thousands and thousands of people who have made it work. So it's just important to recognize the difference between that taxonomical place within an ecosystem that serves an essential role, which you very well may be doing in part of your job, and then also a command and obedience structure of hierarchy, which is unecological. Elon Musk, if you're listening, please abolish your role. Proud sponsor of Today's Seriously Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Seriously Wrong podcast. My name is Aaron. And my name is Sean. And uh, we have a very special guest on the show this week, Brett O'Shea. He's the host of Revolutionary Left Radio and The Guillotine. He had us on Rev Left Radio just about a month ago, an episode called Political Comedy, Online Discourse, Utopianism, and Jeff Bezos. It was posted May 18th, 2018. You can check that out. Highly recommended. He had some great guests on that episode, and we got a great guest on this episode. And actually, I'd recommend listening to both episodes as part of the process of listening to this episode. I think you can listen in any order you want, though. Yeah, either one could go first. There's no direct continuity. One last thing I want to say about Brett before we move on to talking to Brett. Oh, this is secret? We're going to secretly talk about him? Yeah, time to talk about him behind his back. Okay. Brett is an angel and a scholar. I love Brett. Smart guy. One of the nicest, best, cool guys. Don't tell him I said that. Oh, that's devilish. Wow. Oh, yeah. Guilty as charged. Devilish side coming out. Elon, I know you're listening and I know you're just itching for us to get to you. We're going to get to you. A big part of the episode's dedicated to you. Don't worry. This is about you, but you need to listen to this first part of the interview first to get the right context. The spotlight will be on you in no time. Just keep listening. So straight up, Revolutionary Left Radio is one of the best leftist theory discussion podcasts that I know about. You cover all different kinds of leftist theory and practice from the perspectives of all different kinds of tendencies. You do shows looking at history. You do shows analyzing movies or elements of culture. It's very well done. You're great. The guests are great. And it is always interesting to listen to. So why did you decide to make a podcast and what happened? Why are you doing it? First of all, I just wanted to say thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate what you guys do. I've been a longtime fan, so it's fun to kind of collaborate back and forth with one another on my show and on yours. 
But yeah, Revolutionary Left Radio really came out of organizing efforts right in the wake of the Trump election, when I think people all over the country were really scrambling to get together and to organize and figure out how to move forward in the wake of this surprise that we've all been blessed with. So like right away, (laughs) I met with some people that I had known online in like a park at dark (laughs) to start trying to figure out how to organize. And we set up an organization which is still running today and actually has a another chapter we opened in the last few months. It's called the Nebraska Left Coalition. And some of the early conversations we were having is how do we meet the needs of people and how do we educate people and sort of show them that Trump is a natural outcome of this corrupt and broken system that we have. And on the education side of things, we we talked about the possibility of starting a podcast that was about theory and history to try to educate people. And I have a really close friend, David, who is a musician. So he had some of the hardware and software that he uses to record music already in place in his basement. And so we just kind of hijacked that equipment and started trying to do podcasts. You know, I have a degree in philosophy and I have a lot of student debt, but my degree in philosophy got me no job whatsoever. So I've always been trying to find a way to like, how can I incorporate my love of philosophy and political philosophy specifically into something that educates other people? And Revolutionary Left Radio was kind of an outgrowth of that. And then beyond that, it's just, I mean, as a kid, I grew up listening to talk radio. I was a big fan of podcasts generally. And there wasn't a lot of podcasts out there that were doing what I wanted to do, which is like to talk about really left-wing radical politics. You know, there was some Democracy Now! type shows and there were some progressive, maybe even social democratic shows out there, but not a lot of far left philosophy shows. And so we, we did our best and it took off way better than we expected. And, and here we are. It's kind of crazy how it all happened. I just want to say it's really messed up that employers won't hire you based on your philosophy degree <laughs> after you're doing all of this deep philosophical work on the underpinnings of their business that hold the whole business up. It's just they <laughs> yeah, undervalue the philosophers. It's not really a selling point that I'm a communist <laughs> podcaster with a philosophy degree. <laughs> <laughs> well, it should be. Uh, once once we achieve our future that we're all working towards, that's going to put you to the top of the pile instead of like <laughs> blacklist you. Absolutely. I'm waiting for that. (laughs) I'm always really impressed with the depth you get into all these topics on your shows. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with choosing interesting guests who have a lot to say. But like also, I don't know, when I'm listening to you, I'm just like, oh, this guy's an expert. He knows he knows all about (laughs) this stuff. And I don't you don't have the same kind of comedy elements that we have to take the pressure off. I guess I'm just curious about how you go about preparing for the show and whether do you feel like an expert? Do you feel like you know enough or do you also feel as I do that I'm like a, an ignorant baby who <laughs> is in over his head? Yeah, I, I constantly feel like an like an ignorant baby. <laughs> I think, um, <laughs> I don't know if you guys know who David Foster Wallace is, but he wrote Infinite Jest and, mm-hmm. and he committed suicide in 2008. But he had this really interesting speech he gave at some college and he talked about If you invest in, if you view yourself as an intellectual, you'll always feel kind of like an imposter and that you're always aware of what you don't know while other people are not aware of what you don't know. So I try to educate myself and to be as researched and studied up as possible, but I always feel in the back of my mind is like, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert at all. And, and when am I going to be exposed as not being one? But I think that just comes with the territory of, of dealing with this stuff and talking about it. Oh, totally. Yeah. And actually I remember the speech you're talking about, it's called, this is water. It's up on yes. YouTube. And he talks also about like, if what you love about yourself is the fact you're beautiful, you're always going to feel ugly. If what mm. you love about yourself- worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. That is very real to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and with that in mind, though, I do put in a lot of work and I always try from the very first episodes, explain to people, like, hey, I'm just a working class guy. I, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authoritative figure on all of this stuff. I'm just doing my best to learn along with you. You said that having comedy bits takes the pressure off you a bit. Well, having experts on takes the pressure off me a bit. So if there is a topic that I'm not as well versed on, I can lean more on the guests. And there's other episodes where I am very interested and pretty informed on a topic where I inject sort of my analysis and my opinions as well, but I can always kind of walk that line. But ultimately, it's also like self-education. Every time that I schedule a guest, I schedule a topic, and then now I have the challenge of going and researching that topic and trying to come to the table not just with some basic understanding, but with questions that will draw out the most interesting aspects of that topic. So it really is a process of, of self-discovery and self-learning and a, a constant weekly challenge of, okay, this week I'm doing Mao and the Chinese Revolution. Next week I'm doing, you know, Chile and Pinochet. And, and it's, it's a challenge, but I, I really sincerely love it. And so I throw myself into it. And while I'm at work, which is just a meaningless, you know, computer administrative job in an office, I try to do as much work for the podcast as I can on the clock without getting in trouble. So that that also helps is trying to sneak in as, as many hours on the clock at work of actually studying and getting ready for these Rev Left episodes. Get paid to do it. Seizing hours for the revolution. That's right. <laughs> when I used to work hotel maintenance, I would spend sometimes hours and hours at work doing audio editing for the show on my laptop and just like, oh, this feels great. This is like getting paid, do, also doing the podcast stuff. Perfect. Yeah. Hmm. I never steal anything time or otherwise for my work. I'm a really, really dedicated, just for the record. I know you're listening, boss. Honorable. I'm really honest, honorable. Every dollar you pay me is well spent. <laughs> I recently listened to your interview with David Graeber on Bullshit Jobs, and I found that to be just fascinating and also inspiring in a weird way. Like I feel like I have one of those jobs and I feel like that sort of emptiness that, that he kind of describes many people feel like. And actually when I listened to that episode, I, I had just come back from a day of work and a particularly depressing one. And I was feeling really, really low and just kind of like, like, how do I escape wage labor? Like every day I'm thinking, how can I possibly escape this, this prison of wage labor? And I came home feeling particularly depressed and I, I put on that episode and on one hand, it's just sort of a, a rearticulation of the problem. But but for some reason, I felt very inspired and it lifted my mood. And then I heard you guys talking about like, you know, your past jobs and especially at the hotel and, and how you got through the day. And it just resonated. And I realized that a lot of people feel this way, but there's not a lot of mechanisms in popular culture by which to express that and relate to one another about those feelings. We kind of have a, a mythos of rugged individualism and you go to work and that's your duty to your family and, and people kind of suppress the depression and emptiness they feel every day. They don't really know how to talk about it. And so part of this 
blossoming of, of left-wing podcasts and culture is that we're actually starting to have those conversations. And, and I know if I can come home from a hard day of work and hear that and feel a little bit better, you know, and feel a little more inspired that other people feel that way too. And so I try to be as open and honest about the struggles that I have in my own wage labor job and, and people are extremely receptive to it. So I just wanted to congratulate you guys on that wonderful episode. It's really, really good. Oh, thanks a lot, man. And actually, that reminds me of something something that's come out of doing a show over time and that I've seen more and more, which is like sort of along the lines of what you're saying, where these conversations, they can be sort of an antidote for a, a type of internal loneliness, like not loneliness, like I'm not surrounded by anyone, but loneliness that I don't have the language to articulate my position. I don't have the community to articulate and talk about what's important to me. And what I find through online communities and through podcasts and stuff like that is that we're increasingly able to find our voice for articulating our critique and then also bonding with other people over our shared condition in, in new ways. And it's just it's one of the most exciting things about sort of like the new media atmosphere is how these subtle types of like sort of like ideological loneliness, I guess, or just like feeling like people don't see things the way you do. It's just it's so amazing when we're able to like make those connections between the experience I'm having under capitalism, under wage labor, and then being able to find other people who have that same experience and then find the language to describe it and then find the tools for changing it and chipping away at it. What you're saying totally resonates with me is, yeah, at the end of a long day, listening to a show, people making some good points, remind me that I'm not alone, remind me that there's work to be done and feel inspired instead of beat down by it all. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I can't even say how, especially when we first started Revolutionary Left Radio, the amount of messages I would get of people saying exactly that is like, what you're saying on this show is exactly how I felt, but I've never had the words to put it out there or to even fully understand my own feelings. It's like this amorphous, visceral feeling I have every day when I go into work, but finally hearing somebody express the desperation, you know, not only that, but even just politics generally, like people said, I have those political values, but I've never had any outlet or any educational mechanism by which to really draw that out and articulate that. And so in so far as we can sort of help do that, I think we're contributing in our own tiny, humble ways to a really constructive project. And you asked earlier, what's the reason I, I do it and what do I hope to accomplish? One of the reasons I do it is that I want to bring people off the fence and I want to give voice to people that have those feelings and values, which I think a lot more people do than we realize. But also I wanted to develop and inform people that were already on our side. So if you're already committed to the left in some regards, I was hoping to put out a show that could develop and deepen your understanding and your analysis. And by doing that, enrich the left ideologically, theoretically, and historically. I think it's working. And I, I really appreciate just the various tacks you take. Like I was listening to some of your media analysis shows this week, like the one on Mad Max was just like, like I, mm. I love film and discussing film. I actually think pop culture is a really convenient doorway because it's a part of our culture that all of us share, regardless of your politics. And if you're trying to learn about left-wing politics, maybe the best thing is not to necessarily go into a deep discussion on Marxism-Leninism or to rehash the Chinese revolution. But another option we open up for is pop culture. You've seen Mad Max or you've seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Dark Knight Rises. And by exploring these films that we all kind of have knowledge of, we can like unlock certain concepts and ideas and enrich people's understanding of the left through that convenient doorway. So popular culture is something that we're trying to do more of a way of building that bridge for people to come over and learn more. 
different people respond to different things. Some people like our history episodes. Some people like our theory episodes. And some people really love our film analysis episodes. So we just try to do it all and, and hope to get as many people interested as possible. Yeah, just a minute, Dad. Just son, minute. son, I'm opening the door. Hi. Oh, hey. God damn it. It's like a nuclear testing site in here. I really wish you'd wait for me to open my own door. It's just a basic respect thing. Oh, no, what? you're right. I'm sorry. I want to respect the sanctity of your room. Thank I you. I respect you. You're my adult son, and I'm so happy you still live with me, your mother, and grandma. Three generations in one household. Here's the thing, boy. That revolutionary left radio you've been listening to, it's keeping my wife, your mom, and me up. We don't want to hear about revolutionary China. We don't want to hear about the differences between leftism and liberalism. We don't want to hear leftist film analysis of the Dark Knight. This is a Trump house. You live under my Trump roof. My room is not a Trump roof. Okay, son. Well, you're trying your old man's patience, but... Maybe it's too loud, but... Dad, the jobs aren't coming back. You voted for Trump for nothing. You should be listening to this show. That's how you're going to get justice for you and the other workers at the plant who are all laid off. You need to get organized. Your mother and I have always thought you're a smart boy, special boy. Okay, you know Big what? Big adult son. If I want you to listen, I should invite you in and we'll listen together. I shouldn't be passively, you, aggressively blasting it through the wall. Now that sounds nice to me. And then after up, maybe we could have a couple TV dinners and watch the tuck. Dad, you know I hate it when you call Tucker Carlson the tuck. He's the tuck to me, son. If you listen to an episode of Revolutionary Left Radio with me, I will watch an episode of Tucker Carlson. Yes, we'll do it. No, thank you, son. There's nothing that I would love more than to spend a few hours deconstructing your petite, bourgeois, fundamentally liberal, great man of history ideology. Call and me liberal, son, in my own house. I, I don't mean Hillary Clinton. Let's just say that. We'll talk more about it later, but although she is guilty and she is now a you're talking my language. You know what? I could spend a few hours with you talking about your, um, what would you say before? Petite, bourgeois, yeah, yeah, fundamentally liberal yeah, ideology. Yeah, it's a good thing, right? No, no, no. Sorry. I shouldn't use words like that. I just, I know all these jargon words and I just spills out and it's not fair to you because you don't know what I'm saying. I'm sorry for that, dad. I'll explain what it means to you later. Well, son, I think there might be some common ground to be tilled here. Hit play on that tape. Your dad wants to hear what they have to say. All right, I'll just uh, press play. So the other podcast that you host is called The Guillotine, and it's more of a current events show that also takes live calls. In our emails, you described it as less cerebral, more visceral, fiery, and confrontational. And I, th I think part of that comes from Dr. Bones, who's quite an interesting character. as uh, your co-host on that show. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Very entertaining to listen to, even if I don't agree with everything he says. But I really enjoyed checking out the guillotine and preparing for this interview. First of all, it's very refreshing to have someone collating different news stories from a leftist perspective. Like you're talking about revolutions that are happening around the world or revolutionary activities or leftist groups. You're talking about state oppression, imperialist oppression. You're talking about all of these things that get some coverage in other places, but not in the sort of focused 
direct way that I see you guys doing on that show. And in one of the episodes I listened to, you read a statement from a Palestinian organizer talking about their experience of Israel as an occupying force. And it, it was a rather long statement and you read the whole thing and I could just hear in your voice the emotion of the situation that he's in. It's, it, as you said, is very visceral and it made me tear up a little bit. And it wasn't the only time that I teared up a little bit listening to that show and listening to some of the audio clips you guys choose to play. I could say a lot of really positive things about the show. And I'm curious, what's your process in choosing the stories for that show? And like, what do you have to say about the guillotine? Well, thank you for the kind words. I think what the guillotine came out of was we were doing Rev Left and Dr. Bones was recommended as a guest and I didn't know who he was. He came on, me and him had a really good rapport. And as you say, we don't share the same tendency. He is on a very insurrectionary anarchist side of things and I'm more on the Marxist communist side of things. Our personalities are a little different. He is more fiery and I'm more analytical, but we complement each other well. And that, after that episode, people were really interested, like, you know, have Bones back, talk to Bones more. And I had him back again and people loved it again. So I was like, you know, why don't we try to do our own show? And when we were thinking about how to do it and make it different from other shows, we were thinking, how can we make the reality of the suffering of this world and the underbelly of capitalism and imperialism, how can we make it connect to people's hearts? Because on Rev Left and a lot of other shows, we can connect with people's heads, right? We can talk about analytical, intellectual, theoretical, philosophical stuff, and that that's important, and it has a very important role to play, but we wanted to do something different. And, you know, I'm genuinely, every day, heartbroken by this world. The, the other side of being intellectual or, or reading a lot of books and being an organizer is that I'm motivated out of a deep sense of empathy and like I'm eternally wounded. Every time I wait, open my eyes in the morning and I look out over the world and I turn on the TV and I see the news and I drive by homeless people on the street, like I always say, I cry as much as I read. And so if, if Rev Left is coming out of what I read and, and an intellectual approach to the leftist politics, the guillotine is that reflection of, of the heartbreak and the, the visceral rage of this system. And we, we try to expose the underbelly and we try to address stories that are either underreported or if they are reported, they're reported in very shallow ways. We try to give voice to the people in the struggles as well as voice to the people that listen to our show. So, you know, the whole process of making the guillotine episodes is actually pretty hard to do because it's so emotionally challenging. Like I, I've been writing segments for the guillotine and I've like had to step away from the computer and like weep because the suffering that, that comes down on everyday people is just, it's too much to take. But hopefully by exposing that and showing that to people and by connecting them with the heartbreak and the very real suffering that everyday people have to endure in this system, we hope to sort of rile them out of their comfort and, and get them active. Both shows are premised on the idea that we want people to get out and be active, right? We don't just want to make you have a nice little podcast session where you listen to some theory and oh, that's pretty cool or, or get angry at the guillotine and then just go about your life. We always are at the end of shows trying to urge people like, this is what you can do to change things. This is what you can do to get active. And so, you know, the guillotine and rev left are, are taking two directions, one to the head and one to the heart. And we hope that by both, we can draw in different groups of people and that we can hit different levels of people's interest in the world and their relationship to the system that we all have to live under. 
No, yeah, totally. And like I said, I think you guys do a great job of that. Like you, thank you. I can hear it in your voice. I can hear how much you care about these things, and it's it's really um, something to listen to. It sort of reminds me of there's this thing that Mister Rogers said, Comrade Fred Rogers. He said that <laughs> one of the best ways to teach kids what they're passionate about is show them people being passionate about what they do. So, you know, you if you have someone who really loves pottery and then you have that person do what they love in front of children, then some children will say, oh, I want to be in, in pottery or I want a passion like that. And I'm not trying to call everyone podcast listeners children. We're all children <laughs> in a sense, but also just like in what you do on the guillotine by showing that passion and by having that like humanity aspect to it, where it's not the academic presentation, which I think is, is something that we follow into in the left a little bit all the time but like having that emotional element where you're showing up with your heart you're showing up with what motivates you to do it and you can hear in your voice the passion people will be inspired to either have new passions or connect with the passions that they have we were talking before about this sort of like latent potentiality where people have these leanings or these views and and by seeing you express yourself honestly and fully from an emotional place. I really think that people are probably really, really moved to action by that type of stuff. So shout out to Mr. Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Rogers and Dr. Bones. That'd be a fun conversation to sit in on. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned that you and Dr. Bones have two pretty different tendencies. And uh, in our emails leading up to this episode, you identified yourself as advocating Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. I'm curious whether that's something you arrived at through the process of doing your show uh, and just generally like why you advocate for MLM or <laughs> it's a mouthful to say all three of those words at the same time. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> Definitely doing the show has developed me politically week in and week out when I'm engaging with all these ideas and I'm talking to experts in the fields of the things that they're studying. I learn a lot. I read a lot more. It spurs me on to do the research that if I didn't have the show, I'd probably be too lazy to do, you know? So um, in that way, I've, I've changed dramatically since when I began. I have early shows where I like identify as a libertarian Marxist, or I think when I very first started the show, I was more aligned with anarchism. But over the time, I've really developed towards Marxism, towards materialism, towards Leninism, and then towards Maoism. And, and you know, there's a lot I could say about what Maoism is and, and what it stands for. But ultimately, I think that Marxism, Leninism, Maoism is highly tactical. And it really comes out of Mao's attempt in the Chinese Revolution to address some of the problems that he saw in the Soviet Union. How do you have a revolutionary party and a revolutionary government leading a revolution that doesn't get detached from the people they're supposed to represent, right? How do we prevent an ossified bureaucracy at the top of this system commanding the entire economy and the population, undermining the ideals of socialism, which is that power comes from below, that regular people have, have power in their hands and they can have a democratic say in how their society is run? And how do we not only change the economic relationships, but the social relations of that society? So a fundamental Marxist-Leninist or Maoist position is that good revolutionary theory comes through the actual crucible of revolution. You can't formulate the best 
theory just by sitting in an armchair, but the best theory comes out of actually engaging in class struggle and world historical revolutions. And some of the things that Maoism advocates, I'm not going to get into every little thing. Of course, there's so much we could talk about, but things like the mass line, which is this idea that whether you're organizing like in the US right now, or whether you're a communist government trying to stay in tune with the people and represent them, the mass line says that you should constantly be in contact with working class people, with oppressed people, listening to them, listening to what their demands are, listening to what their desires are, and then reformulating those ideas and values through the prism of revolutionary theory and materialism, bringing back solutions to the people that speak directly to their needs. And then even when you're building socialism, the class struggle continues. And one of the things that happened in Maoist China was the cultural revolution. And Mao's idea was like, the party is getting ossified from the people. It's getting distanced from the people. There's elements within this party that are kind of taking us back to capitalism or that are liberal or conservative in certain ways. And so I want to unleash the people on the party itself, like to make sure that the party is actually responsive to the needs of the people. And it resulted in a cultural revolution. We're not going to get into the history, but the ideas there are really interesting to me. So as I've developed politically, I've been gravitating towards this this strategy and this theory because it's born out of actual revolution and it's tactical and it's pragmatic and you can't adhere to Maoism and not do anything, right? Maoism is very much a call to action and the theories that Maoism offers are theories of action. They're they're ways to get involved and to start making differences right away. You can't be an armchair Maoist. (laughs) I mean, maybe you could be, but it's not real Maoism. So, I mean, there's a million different ways we could take this conversation, but that's where I am right now. But at the same time, people develop politically and we're always learning and we're always growing. So I always reserve the right to continue changing my mind, to continue to learn new things and to develop politically in whatever direction I feel I'm going to move in. So that's just where I am right now. And I think it's an underrepresented and and wildly misunderstood tendency. And so hopefully my interest reflected in the show of Revolutionary Left Radio can educate people on it. So even if you don't ultimately agree with Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, I think we all benefit from at least trying to understand other tendencies and understand the traditions out of which they spring. So one of the points that you brought up is the tendency towards materialism. And I'm just curious, I I wanted Mm -hmm. to hear more about how you conceive of materialism. When I hear materialism, I think of Neil deGrasse Tyson primarily, Mm -hmm. not not Mao. Um, So how does a Maoist conception of materialism break from a Neil deGrasse Tyson conception of materialism? Yeah. So there's a scientific materialism, which is like ontological materialism. What's the basis of the cosmos? Is it fundamentally material and that gives rise to consciousness? Or is it fundamentally like God creates the universe through his consciousness and material is a outcome of God's consciousness, etc. So, you know, modern science is materialist in the sense that they don't believe in, in the supernatural. They believe that consciousness is a product of physics and chemistry and biology and not the other way around. But when you're talking about politics, Marxism specifically, materialism is the way of analyzing history and analyzing a present economic and political situation that are actually grounded not in ideas about how the world should work, but in the means of production, in the ways that human beings come together to produce and reproduce the material basis for their existence. And that gives rise to to class struggles as people fight over resources and different sets of classes in a society vying for their own interests, etc. It's really a way of analyzing history and social conditions in a way that gets your focus attention on how things actually are 
And by doing that, you can actually strategize and move forward in a more informed, grounded way. I, I just want to press you a little more. Just why is Maoism not just ideas? Because when you talk about the ideology of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, an ideology is like a set of ideas, right? And there's like a process back and forth between material and ideas. Sure. How does Maoism break from just being ideas? Do you know what I mean? Like clearly Maoism yeah. is ideas on some sense, but like why, how does it break from that? Okay, so Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, and the so-called ideas about materialism that it adheres to is analogous to Darwinism and its materialism in that it's a methodology. You can say that Darwinism is just an idea, but what differentiates it from other ideas, say creationism, is that it is scientifically rigorous. It seeks answers to questions not in theoretical speculations about the world, but in a concrete study of the biological world and its machinations over time. Marxism materialism is more or less the same thing. The only difference is that its object of study is not how organisms evolve biologically. Marxists study the productive forces and their consequent social relations in order to understand the development of human society over time. Darwin rejected supernatural explanations about the creation and development of humankind. Marxists reject explanations of society and history that ignore the economic base of society and its fundamental class nature. So Marxist, Maoist, whatever you want to call us, reject idealist understandings of history, which chalk up the fundamental cause of like social and historical processes to various conscious forces exerting their will on society, or to revolutionary ideas that great individuals come up with, looking instead to the way that human beings produce and reproduce the material requirements of existence as the fundamental cause. Maybe like a good way to understand this is to talk about an example. So I was thinking fascism. Now, when you watch the way that, say, NPR, MSNBC, or Fox News talks about the rise of fascism, they talk about it in terms of, like, bad people with bad ideas, or in the case of Fox News crowd, some very good people with some worthwhile ideas. But a Marxist materialist understanding of fascism sees it as a manifestation of class society in crisis. As Lenin said, fascism is capitalism in decay. Capitalism, out of necessity, fosters and institutionalizes the hierarchies of race and class and gender. And when capitalism is in a moment of crisis, fascism rises its ugly head to violently defend and reassert those hierarchies. Fascism is a modern phenomenon, coming onto the historical stage in the most obvious ways in Germany, Spain, and Italy after the Great Depression and a devastating imperialist world war. Today, in the wake of the greatest financial collapse since the Great Depression, and in the face of progressive social movements that are trying to seek to challenge the hierarchies of race, class, and gender, we once again see the rise of fascist movements in the West. So materialism is not just another idea about the world, in my opinion. It's a systematic methodology for analyzing the historical development of societies and for understanding social phenomena from climate change to imperialism to fascism to the election of Donald Trump and the outcome of the Brexit vote. But as you alluded to, Sean, ideas still play an important role. Although they are ultimately products of underlying material forces, they still serve in to turn around and help shape and maintain those forces. There is a back and forth relationship between ideas and the underlying material forces and social relations, or as Marxists like to put it in our own jargon, there is a complex dialectical relationship between the base of a society and its superstructure. But ultimately, we argue that the material base is the primary force at play. I think Marx himself summarized it well when he said, it is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. Well, th I mean, th there's definitely some things there that I agree with or, or resonate with me in some way, although the jargon isn't my preferred mode of communicating. Um, it's sort of an allergy for me, actually. But I also, I wonder, maybe this is a counter signal that was more needed in in Marx's time um, or Mao's time, the the idea that that we need to conceive of the base and superstructure that way and in, in such a way that, you know, material forces are primary and ideas are secondary rather than 
if there's a complex dialectical process between these two things, then I would wonder what gives one primacy over the other and what makes one more important or more primary than the other when it's complicated and in different circumstances, different things apply. Like, for example, the idea of a plane is something that started as an idea that's not a result of a class tension. Planes didn't come from the tension between the rich and the poor, or it, and it didn't come from the structural productive forces of society. It came from an idea, and it was based on engineering and science and analysis that comes from the material world, but all of those things about the material world are our ideas of the material world. And one of the things that makes human beings separate from everything else in nature that we've been able to observe so far is we have the capacity to create and pass on these complex ideas. And so an idea as complex as a plane that flies can only really be described in the context of ideas. And maybe ideas themselves are material. Who knows? I guess just the the key point I want to make is that while it's definitely true that the material conditions and circumstances we find ourselves in have a influence on our ideology, I think everyone should be able to roughly agree that our circumstances are massively important in forming our ideas. But I don't think there's any sort of like unidirectional, this position in society equals this idea. It's like clearly there's a lot of fluctuation there. And because there's a lot of fluctuation there, I feel like it's really important to center the fact that these ideas actually matter. And in a revolutionary moment, in a puncture of society where we're going to be moving from one mode of society to the next, it's extremely crucial that in that time that people have the right ideas. So I don't think it's a big secret that I'm critical of some of the framings and terminology that's used in this type of analysis. But there's so much to talk about here, and there's there's so many points I want to make, and we have so much to get to on the show. So maybe I'll just leave it at, I think that neither ideas nor material circumstances can meaningfully be called primary in a revolutionary sort of analysis, and that very specifically during revolution is when ideas are most important. Yeah. I mean, like, I have some issues with the idea that history can be approached scientifically because we don't have an actual history to examine. We have stories people wrote about history, words, texts. The true history, the physical history is inaccessible to us. So, but I don't know. There's a lot of different directions we could go with all this. And maybe on another episode, we'll really dig into where we disagree. But nevertheless, The last question that I wanted to ask before we move on to the second half of the episode where we're going to talk about Elon Musk is, well, it's kind of even related to this because like when when we were on your show, we jokingly referred to ourselves as idealist utopians, uh, which is something I think we have been called and it's maybe a fair criticism. Uh, (laughs) And so I think if you want to be really taxonomical, we're libertarian socialists, something like that. But yeah, utopianism generally doesn't have a good rap on either the left or the right. So I, I was just wondering, how do you view utopianism in your in your political world? Utopianism is almost always used as a pejorative, like you said, whether on the left or the right. Utopianism is sort of ultimately used in our culture as a way of saying like your ideas are disconnected from reality. And I've 
I've been under that influence as well. But listening to your show and, and hearing your guys' articulation of it, what I've come to realize is that perhaps utopianism can be best understood as a way of expanding political imagination, as a way of, of challenging some basic core assumptions about the way the world is right now. And, and in so doing, even if we ultimately don't get to the most utopian ideas of, of how things could be, it challenges us and it moves us forward and it makes us get uncomfortable with, with some basic ideas and assumptions that we have living in this society. So insofar as utopianism can be seen as a positive thing, I think it's fundamentally about broadening our, our horizons and opening up our political imagination because one of the ways that this system perpetuates itself is through this idea that there is no alternative and that capitalism is natural, that this is the natural state of affairs. People always make the human nature argument, right? Like socialism, communism, these things are against human nature. <laughs> capitalism is a natural outgrowth of who we are as human beings. That's a very, very strong yeah, statement. Capitalism and, um, has both always existed and never yet existed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I think utopianism can play a really interesting role in in challenging that basic idea that that this is all there is and there's there's nothing f- further to do. And certain popular cultural expressions like, you know, science fiction, I think, also promotes a sort of utopianism in that it challenges some assumptions and it broadens our political imagination and allows us to think about the future in in interesting ways. So I find it helpful. I don't know what a political movement based on utopianism would be, right? I think like utopianism is a tool in the toolbox, but I'm not quite sure what utopian is as a political movement. Does that make sense? What do you guys think? To touch back on something else that you said previously regarding your conception of Maoism, like the actions that you take are what make you a Maoist in the first place, and that your theory comes from practice, your theory comes from the world. And I, I think when a lot of people think of utopianism, they assume that that is like ruled out from the start. But the way that I see utopianism, like when I identify mm-hmm. as it, that's very much part of the process for me. And I, I feel like there's sort of an interesting synthesis here because like I, I 100% agree. I think that a utopian, a utopian ideology that isn't organizing, that isn't talking to people, that isn't hearing from the masses or isn't participating in society, like there's a real risk of becoming completely detached or being like Elon Musk described himself as a utopian on Twitter this week. And it's like, well, that's not the same tendency of utopian that I identify with. (laughs) Because if you look at his actual like material practice and what he's doing in the world, it's completely out of sync with what the utopia should be. So although there's like, to whatever degree, there's a clash that comes out of our preferred modes of identification. I feel like there's really still a synthesis here and the main key ideas sort of percolate through both. Correct me if I'm wrong here because I'm I'm far far from a MLM scholar, but you know, <laughs> the dream of Marxist-Leninist Maoism is a liberated society. And yes. so it's an interesting example of how a lot of political disagreements come out of not primarily like whether or not we're all on the same page when it comes to universal human emancipation, or even that we're not all on the same page when it comes to what to do next. Like, I think we could find a lot of short-term practices that we would agree are important and super useful and and contribute to this, but just in how we're choosing to describe it. So yeah, I, I guess I just feel like it makes my ideas stronger by hearing 
when people frame similar ideas in really different ways. That makes complete sense. And that's exactly what we try to do. You know, one of the sub series and Rev Left Radio is these tendency episodes where we we have on an anarchist or we have on a neo-Marxist or we have on a Maoist or even we've had anarcho-primitivist. Dr. Bones identifies as an egoist. So whether or not you ultimately agree with these positions, not only do we benefit from learning from one another, but we actually can kind of build solidarity despite our differences. And I, I truly believe that while it's important to have a principled political line and it's important to have a coherent theoretical position that you pursue, I truly think that the only way that we're actually going to make change, especially here in the U.S. in the 21st century, is through principled coalitions of leftists who are not going to share the exact same ideas about how to move forward. But Oh, God, I hope not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we do, have this, we do have this long-term idea of what we want to get to. And there's lots of things we can work on in the meantime to work towards that goal that we can kind of agree on that doesn't necessarily involve us compromising our values, but it, it does involve us learning from one another and trying to be a little more humble than we like to be online yeah. <laughs> when it's easier to just be a hardliner for whatever position you have. You know? If I admit that I've learned something, then it's proof that my entire political project is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sometimes it feels that way. It feels like people think that way sometimes. Totally. And especially the way that sort of like conflict of like Butting heads can just be completely antithetical to anyone learning anything or anyone admitting that there's common ground or anything like that, where people are like very siloed up in these jerseys, these team jerseys, you know, and it really obscures the fact that although maybe we have all these different colored team jerseys. The goal we're trying to score on is capitalism. The goal we're trying to score on right. is building a universally emancipated society. So to the degree that we can all work as a team despite our different jerseys, I think the better better off we'll be with a, a, an ecology of tactics or an ecology sure. of tendencies. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I think too. And, and one other idea I have is if you truly are an anarchist or you truly are a Leninist or whatever your position is, and you want to pursue that line because you believe it's, it's superior to their line, then pursue it. And there's organizations out there that will share your tendency. And instead of arguing with other leftists about why they're wrong, try to focus your energy on joining with people who do, who do agree with you mm -hmm. and pushing forward your project. And if a bunch of us with different ideas are joining different organizations and pushing forward on different fronts, I think ultimately we'll learn from one another. Oh, the anarchists do this really, really well. Or the Marxists do this really, really well. Look at the democratic socialists are changing taillights and they're doing this really, really well. And so instead of having to like all come together in some hodgepodge group of people that just kind of share some basic ideas together, why don't we all just join with people who we more or less agree with and push forward and you know form coalitions with different organizations around shared interests. But ultimately there's no need to be attacking each other and, and cutting each other's throats. Throats, just just do the work that you think needs to be done. And if we all can focus on that, I think good things will come naturally out of, out of all of us pursuing what we feel is the best way forward. And now it's time for the old materialist and idealist sketch. All right. Thank you, everyone, for coming to the Wrong Town New Leftist Organization. Let's just go around in a circle. Everyone can say their name, what they believe in. My name is Aaron. I'm an idealist. I think we're all idealists here. We believe that changing people's minds is how you change the world and taking actions is pointless. How about you? What's your name? My name's Sean. I am, unlike some people, unlike some tendencies, a materialist. I believe the world is real. I believe that material matter 
matters. And in fact, ideas are functionally useless. They don't play a part in the process of history. History is determined by material forces interacting with each other at the microscopic level to even societies where you have workers and bosses colliding. Uh, that's the structure of everything. Okay, and, yeah, so just, um, um, we, sorry, before, before we move I, along further um, along the circle, here, this like, was really meant to be a brief introduction, but I think maybe you have the wrong idea about how this group functions we are an idealist group so you're welcome to be here but we're not going to be doing anything i'm trying to think of something to say that's not an insult i'm having a hard time with yeah that. maybe if you had a little few more ideas in your head okay, you might be able well, to think of something that's, that's to say fine. that's fine that's a good thing I to mean, say for to someone who comrade, believes that ideas that's a good thing do to say nothing your comrade at a first meeting isn't it well, Pro I mean, organizer you just, over here. You kind of insulted all my ideas and all of everyone else's ideas by saying that they're all pointless and they don't mean anything. You organize the people. It doesn't matter what they think. There's oh, no need for ideological work. Hmm. Organization seems like an idea. Uh, no, it's something that materially happens. It's praxis. It's interacting with the material world. Not in an armchair. Being in an armchair, that's you. Nothing useful happens in the street. I never ask the person in the armchair what they think. No one should have thoughts. You can't Only do action. anything without thinking, okay? But you're also against doing things. And you're against thinking things. I know. I'm not sure we can till this soil. I'm not sure there's any shared yeah, soil there's no here to be tilled. Soil to be tilled. There's no interplay between these ideas. We have reached an unbridgeable chasm. You should just leave. This isn't the place for you. There's... I block that. We don't have consensus. Are you guys getting this? He, he only doesn't believe in ideas. Using ideas, except he actually still uses ideas because he just blocks me, which is an idea. No, that isn't an idea. It's only an idea. It's not an action. In it any was the way action or of blocking. It's conceptual. Verb. Nothing happened. And so the two idiotic straw men never work together. The end. Now it's time to get into Elon. Elon, it's about you now. This is about you. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we were on Brett's show, he gave us the space to do some comedy bits. We did this fake Amazon employee instructional video, and we really appreciated him giving us the space on his show to show his audience what we do. So we wanted to give him the space on our show to show our audience what he does. On the guillotine, he prepares a statement to read, and they discuss it after. Uh, this one's about Elon Musk, so... We'll take it away, Brett. Okay, so there are a million different angles that one could take when it comes to criticizing Elon Musk. In fact, choosing which parts of his existence to critique, given the time restraints here, was the most difficult part of preparing for this interview. However, I decided to focus my attention on two primary political realities that Elon Musk represents. One, the capitalist urge to profit as much as possible by exploiting and abusing labor. And two, the bourgeois ideology of neoliberal privatization and the individualist great man of history theory, of which Musk is not only a manifestation, but also a figure through which these harmful ideas continue to spread and grow. So let's start by examining how Musk treats his workers, which, if you listen to our Rev Left episode featuring Aaron and Sean a couple of weeks ago, mirrors the way that Jeff Bezos treats his workers namely as mere means toward their own financial ends. Musk likes to portray his company, and indeed himself, as small yet scrappy underdogs facing off against the giants of other automobile companies, big government, the media, and union thugs. He, along with his fanboys in the population, likes to market himself as a John Galt-style genius who, if unrestrained by regulations, pesky media outlets critical of his practices, and workers trying to organize to make his companies less efficient, could revolutionize the world, defeat climate change, bring auto 
automobiles into the 21st century and even colonize Mars. This image of his, however, tends to shrivel up and keel over when examined closely. To begin, let's hear what some of the people Musk works with have to say about him. J.B. Straubel, Tesla's chief technology officer and one of the company's co-founders, describing what it's like to work with Musk, said, quote, I try really hard to back away and put my ego aside. Elon is incredibly difficult to work for, but it's mostly because he's so passionate. He can be impatient and say, God damn it, this is what we have to do. And some people will get shell-shocked and catatonic. It seems like people can get afraid of him and paralyzed in a weird way. End quote. A former Tesla employee who opted to speak anonymously to Bloomberg's Ashley Vance, who wrote a book on Musk a couple of years ago, described his experience working with Musk. Quote, Elon's worst trait by far, in my opinion, is a complete lack of loyalty or human connection. Many of us worked tirelessly for him for years and were tossed to the curb like a piece of litter without a second thought. Maybe it was calculated to keep the rest of the workforce on their toes and scared. Maybe he was just able to detach from human connection to a remarkable degree. What was clear is that people who worked for him were like ammunition, used for a specific purpose until exhausted and discarded, end quote. This analysis of Musk is not just the opinion of a handful of people. It's borne out again and again in incidences which occur inside Musk's various companies. For example, according to an incident report obtained by The Guardian, ambulances have been called more than 100 times since 2014 for workers experiencing fainting spells, dizziness, seizures, abnormal breathing, and chest pains. Fifteen current and former factory workers told The Guardian of a culture of long hours under intense pressure, sometimes through pain and injury, in order to fulfill the CEO's ambitious production goals. Jonathan Galesco, a production technician at Tesla, said in an interview with The Guardian, quote, I've seen people pass out, hit the floor like a pancake and smash their face open, and they just send us to work around him while he's still lying on the floor, end quote. Mikey Katura, a worker on Tesla's battery pack line, said, quote, We had an associate on my line. He just kept working, kept working, kept working. Next thing you know, he just fell on the ground, end quote. Another worker, Michael Sanchez, was recruited five years ago to work at Tesla, a company he believed was part of the future. Now, Sanchez has two herniated discs in his neck, is on disability leave from work, and can no longer grip a pencil without pain. When workers told managers about their pain, Sanchez said they responded, quote, We all hurt. You can't man up, end quote. Moreover, workers claim that they are punished for reporting injuries because if they do, they are often consigned to light-duty work, which comes with a substantial decrease in pay. In response to journalist exposés like this, as well as workers coming forward to denounce how they are treated, Musk has responded with a mixture of aggression, argumentation, arrogance, sarcasm, and woe-is-me pity parties. For example, in response to the claims I outlined above, Musk said, quote, "...it's incredibly hurtful, and I think false, for anyone to claim that I don't care." The CEO said that his desk was, quote, the worst place in the factory, the most painful place. (laughs) In early 2016, he claimed that he slept on Tesla's factory floor in a sleeping bag to, quote, make it the most painful thing possible. I knew people were having a hard time working long hours and on hard jobs. I wanted to work harder than they did to put even more hours in, end quote. Now, you can Google search Elon Musk treats his workers poorly for an array of articles from a plethora of sources outlining many more cases and incidences like those described above. But the truth is that Musk, just like Bezos, aren't just bad people, they're capitalists. They operate inside of a system, and that system shapes their motivations and incentives and behaviors. So while we can and should condemn them as individuals and hold them accountable for their failures, given the amount of power they hold, the truth is that capitalism treats workers like this all over the planet, and often much worse. 
You don't solve these problems by replacing capitalists with better people in the same way that you don't solve racism and policing by replacing some cops with better people. You fix these problems by addressing their underlying causes and creating new institutions and social relations that operate in ways which promote different forms of behavior and different sets of incentives. But having said that, let's move on to the second aspect of Elon Musk that I want to address, neoliberal bourgeois ideology. Now, there is a liberal tendency, which is a manifestation of the commitment to individualism and liberal philosophy, to view history as well as the present through the prism of what is often called the great man of history theory. In short, the idea is that liberals, and I mean this in the broadest philosophical sense, which includes conservatives and libertarians, view historical progress not in terms of class struggle and material development, but rather through the intervention in history of great individuals and their ideas. This individualistic and idealist conception serves serves the interest of capital because it undermines or whitewashes the collective nature and struggle of classes of people against their institutional oppressors, helping the system continue. Now, most liberals aren't cognizant of this, and they certainly don't perpetuate it in a scheming and cynical way. Rather, it's passively and seamlessly inculcated in all of us from the moment we are born through advertising, through school, through popular culture, through politics, etc. And so it's often unconsciously built into the way that we think. And we have to do significant work to see it for what it is and break out of that conditioning. As Karl Marx himself once said, quote, the ideas of the ruling class are, in every epoch, the ruling ideas, end quote. And even members of the working class absorb and regurgitate them. But all of that philosophy I just laid out is merely in the service of highlighting what role Musk plays in our society. And to make the specifics of this clear, let's focus on Musk's idea for space travel. Now, we are all aware of Musk's company SpaceX, but what you may not be aware of is that it was started by Musk with the specific goal of colonizing the solar system. In late 2016 at the International Astronautical Congress, Musk laid out his ideas for colonizing space. The ideas he espoused at that congress included basic neoliberal, technocratic, and free market concepts, financial estimates, engineering specification, the cost of tickets, which ended up being in the hundreds of thousands, and even his ideas for making Mars a depressing reflection of strip mall Earth, privatized dance clubs, spas, pricey restaurants, etc. In short, it's what every gentrifying developer imagines doing. But what it also reflected is the fact that Musk and those like him, unable to see outside of their own ideological conditioning, can't help but replicate the very logic which is increasingly making Earth something we must flee in the first place, namely the logic of neoliberal capitalism, which says that social change can be achieved through the power and buying decisions of dispersed individual consumers. And when you try to escape the problems caused by an underlying structure, by taking that structure and building it up again somewhere else, you aren't solving anything. Rather, you are muddying the water around the discourse and making it more difficult to address those underlying problems. But to a population like ours, which is conditioned to think in the same ways that Musk thinks, his vision not only seems plausible, it seems downright laudable. And hence you see the blossoming up around Musk of a cult of personality. Members of the general public who not only hold Musk up as some sort of genius, but who will go to war with you if you disagree. Because to them, he is a great man, and only great individuals and their brilliant ideas can save humanity and take our species to the next level. And instead of using our technology and resources and wealth as a civilization to systematically address the structural problems of our planet, the neoliberal delusion is to reject that idea and tilt their head away from the dirt they currently stand in and up towards the stars, which, like comforting fairy tales, help them to feel all warm and fuzzy inside. 
After all, if one was to really begin seriously looking at concrete solutions to the world's problems, it would force them to look at the socioeconomic structures which generate those problems. And to do that would mean a shattering of the cognitive dissidence that defenders of capitalism and the liberal ideology which is generated by it premise their entire worldview on. The fact is, no one person or small group of people can solve our global issues. No new consumer product or service can rescue us from the towering problems we face as a civilization. No Tony Stark or Bruce Wayne or Elon Musk type billionaire can meaningfully address the troubles we face as individuals and as a global community. The solutions to our problems as a species is not $200,000 tickets to strip clubs and privatized golf courses on Mars. That's escapism. The solution is to transcend the current global paradigm of capitalism and empire, to eradicate the capitalist incentive system which is premised on eternal growth, exploitation, and competition in the name of profits for a few, to actively overcome the alienation we feel towards nature which shapes our understanding of it as something separate from us, and to build up collective institutions dedicated not to property and profit, but to creating a sustainable and healthy natural environment where the primary incentive for all of humanity is to create the highest quality of life for every human being as is materially possible. This requires a collective confrontation with class society and the hierarchies of wealth and power that it inevitably creates. This requires power, as well as wealth, being redistributed to regular people all over the globe. This requires working people coming together in their own communities, solving their own problems, and working in a bottom-up fashion to hold those at higher levels accountable. This requires high-quality universal education, and it requires groups of experts in every relevant field working alongside grassroots social movements, workers' councils, and government institutions to come up with systematic solutions to systematic problems. This will certainly require planned economies, which produce and distribute goods and resources in a rational way with long-term sustainability in mind. But whatever the solutions end up being, one thing is for sure. We cannot depend on great men with wildly disproportionate levels of wealth and power inside the confines of a chaotically unsustainable global free market system which rewards greed and which generates perpetual conflict, poverty, and inequality, and which robs the vast majority of us from having a say in where our lives are headed to deliver us a better world. The future of our species, if we have a future at all, will absolutely involve becoming spacebound, but not in the spectacularly absurd way that Elon Musk and other neoliberal billionaires propose, but rather more closely to the way it's portrayed in Star Trek when Captain Picard, in response to someone asking about money, says, Economics of the future is somewhat different. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. No money? You mean you don't get paid? The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. Now that future can only be reached if we address the problems of global capitalism before we take off into the stars. Because to reverse the order in which we attempt those things would only mean that we carry the barbarity, the cruelty, the inequality, the poverty, the exploitation, and the suffering of our modern world out into the pristine cosmos. And that wouldn't be an advancement. That would be a tragedy. In conclusion, Elon Musk and his companies aren't going to save us. We have to save ourselves. And that means telling people like Elon that if he wants to go to space, he can go. But the rest of us have work to do here. Okay, now with that out of the way, let's make fun of the dude's tweets.
Well, I'm so excited to talk about these dumbass tweets with you, Brett. <laughs> these stupid ass <laughs> tweets. Like, what what luck for us? Like, we've been planning to do this Elon episode since the day we recorded <laughs> about Bezos, and we were like, we'll do Elon on our show. We'll <laughs> record it in like a month, and then just stays before we're recording. Elon comes out on Twitter, <laughs> right just, on just gives us this wonderful <laughs> gift. Bizarre, contradictory. He identified as a socialist. Then he was saying that socialists have no sense of humor. Oh. And then he was saying that he's an anarchist utopian in the style of Ian Banks, which is kind of what I would say like we are. But like, I don't think Elon's on board with the stuff we're saying. So it's like very bizarre cultural moment that we've been able to record this episode. And it's, it's such luck. You know, it really makes me feel like there is such a thing as destiny when Elon gets on Twitter and posts that dumb whack <laughs> shit right when we're about to. <laughs> right he says, those who proclaim themselves socialists are usually depressing, have no sense of humor humor and attended an expensive college. Fate loves irony. So I, I just want to say, number one, colleges shouldn't be expensive, Elon. Well, <laughs> it's not hypocrisy that, to live under capitalism. That, that's a good point, too. My point was going to be like, we describe ourselves as socialists sometimes and we have a sense of humor and neither yeah. of us went to an expensive college. I like to think I'm not depressing. <laughs> Elon. So Elon, if you haven't checked out our show, I think you'll really like it. Just on the whole, like, certain ideologies don't have a sense of humor thing. It's like, what fucking low-hanging fruit, dude? Like, you should get someone else to manage your Twitter yeah. for you. He's obviously on the defensive, and he he's, like, regurgitating these cliches about socialism without actually knowing what it is. I like how he says this, too. He's like, by the way, <laughs> he's just sneaking this in. It's how he starts to tweet. By the way, I'm actually a socialist, just not the kind that shifts resources from the most productive to the least productive pretending to do good while actually causing harm true socialism seeks greatest good for all so i just love how first of all elon musk is the voice of true socialism <laughs> but he sneaks in this idea that you know we're shifting resources from the most productive i.e him to the least productive i.e the rest of us and it's just like vomiting up these old cliches about social you have no clue what you're talking about i don't even know why he feels the need to call himself a socialist yeah it's some weird contrarian thing he has going on he wants a Attention. I'm pretty sure he wants attention. And so here you go, Elon, we're giving you attention. But to call yourself the most productive people, it assumes oh, like... Yeah, because well, we're not giving the resources to the global poor because we're hoping they're going to make electric cars. We're giving resources to them because they're fucking dying. Yeah. Exactly. Fuck Elon. People are productive every single day, this entire system. In fact, his entire corporation depends on people at the bottom of, of his corporate hierarchy doing the actual on-the-shop floor work to make his profits even possible in the first place. So just this this splitting up of society between the most and least productive people is a fallacy and it just serves to reinforce this egoic belief on the behalf of people like Musk that his success comes about because he is a great person, that he is superior in every way and that is why his companies are successful. Not because of all the workers that actually do the labor but because of him, his personality, his gumption and his ideas. And so it, it it's ultimately serves just to bolster his own ego. And I mean like not that I don't think electric cars are like like a valuable thing that we should be directing productive energies into, but just his companies haven't necessarily been that productive 
other car companies are being like, yeah, he's making a lot of rookie mistakes that we figured out decades ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. As far as being super productive, the company Tesla, while the engineers that work for him have designed some really cool machines, I don't necessarily see him as having been super productive. Well, and he's he's receiving billions of dollars there's like state subsidies like there's the example of the solar plant in new york the state of new york paid 750 million dollars to build a solar plant which they're now leasing to elon musk's company at a rate of one dollar a year what is that elon like what's exactly going on i want to hear elon's analysis of what's going on like what is that giving the money to the most productive people to you or like it's it's just it's so bizarre. And also, Elon, what is your what's your critique of reproductive labor? What's your critique of the cyclical unpaid labor of everyday life that makes society work? Because when you talk about taking away from the most productive people to give it to the least productive, do you count single mothers as unproductive people? They're raising the children that are going to work in your factories. Are you, are you counting like are you counting families as unproductive if they're focusing their resources on teaching their children effectively how to interface with reality and become not just people in society, but active citizens and political actors who treat other people with respect. Is that productivity to you? Is cleaning the dishes after you're done eating productive, Elon? Do you do your own dishes? When was the last time you cleaned your room, Elon? Or do you get someone to do that? Like These are the questions that come to mind when I read his tweets and I start going down like the angry path. <laughs> but when right, I go right. down the happy path, I'm like, oh, he said he's in a utopian. <laughs> what a fucking weirdo. Well, speaking of the reproductive labor of raising children, do you think Elon Musk raises his own children? Of course not. You know, he probably has an army of nannies that do it for him. But this, it, it speaks to this libertarian delusion that there is such a thing as great individuals abstracted away from the social context in which they live. I mean, from the fact that that Elon's so many of his corporations are undergirded by public money, like I think four point nine billion dollars in government subsidies at the beginning to to help his his program grow, and then the army of consumers and workers that it takes to actually build up his companies and enrich himself. Like there is no such thing as as this libertarian superhero standing above the masses and producing these wonderful things. But that's the delusion that people like Elon Musk not only replicate, but actually believe. I think Elon Musk truly believes himself to be one of the greatest people alive right now. And the liberal media and his fanboys online certainly help facilitate that delusion. Oh man, that is a really disturbing thought. And it seems accurate that he might actually self-conceive as one of the most important people in the world. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he might. <laughs> what a nightmare. Oh, my God. It, I feel like yeah. it's just obvious in the way he talks about himself and his plans for the future and his companies and like what he's doing. And like he seems kind of narcissistic in the way that I imagine someone who got made fun of a lot in high school hits it lucky on a few dot com companies and is able to afford hair transplants and plastic surgery and become the alpha that you always wanted to be. And then... <laughs> Okay, well, I've got one thing to say on the alpha thing. Like, We could get into a very specific critique of Elon Musk's feminism, to put it extremely generously. (laughs) Like, If he's a socialist, then I mean, there should be a feminist analysis there. His first wife said in an article I read once, and this is one of the cringiest things ever, so I'm just going to give a real warning to people, like, prepare to be disgusted. Apparently at the wedding, he like leaned into her ear and whispered, I am the alpha of this relationship. (sighs) 
that's that's a real Elon Musk quote from his wife. And <laughs> on the wedding night. On the wedding night. It's like, oh, I'm glad we handled that now. Maybe you should have mentioned that when we were getting engaged, because I thought we were gonna be humans and partners. Another another quote that I think really shows his attitude towards gender dynamics, which I think requires a little bit of introspection. So if you're listening, Elon, I bring this up not just to dunk on you, but to encourage you to consider deeply how gender dynamics play out. I know it's a challenging process to be self-critical around this. You know, I've, I've had struggles with this. Like all men have struggles with figuring out gender dynamics. We live in a society that has set us up to fail as far as respecting women. But here's a quote from Elon. This is before he started dating Grimes. I need to find a girlfriend. That's why I need to carve out just a little more time. I think maybe even another five to ten. How much time does a woman want a week? Maybe ten hours? I don't know. <laughs> just this like God. ultra technical, like yeah, I need yeah. to figure out where in Corporate my schedule. Corporate management mindset. <laughs> wow. All right. So set the lights correctly. I want a little bit of smooth music. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by you. More specifically, those of you who donate to us on Patreon. Thank you so much. Those consistent monthly donors are making the show possible, and I really want to express gratitude. I also want to let everyone know that we want to take this to the next level, and when people donate to us, it lets us take it to the next level. I feel like we already... We've moved up some levels. We want to move up even more levels. Yeah, I see the peak, and with your help, we can get there. Will you please consider chipping in $6 a month, becoming a beautiful genius, you get to join the Facebook group. We do Google Hangouts. Also, you get access to the whole archive. That's every single episode, yep. including the embarrassing ones. <laughs> uh, which there's a couple. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again to people who are considering donating yeah. it's humbling and thank you 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 for listening and thank you thank you to everyone i have a question for you guys what about elon musk is making him do this downward spiral on twitter where he's coming out as a socialist or a utopian anarchist like is he just trying to mitigate criticism from his left when they're talking about you know like the way he treats his workers and his anti-union stances is is like this is a desperate attempt to to mitigate that criticism by claiming to be a part of the crowd that's criticizing him what do you guys think about the psychology involved here yeah, I don't know, because yeah, like I've read a few articles about like union busting activities happening in Tesla plants and at his companies. I think he's having an identity crisis. There's nothing wrong with having an identity crisis. This isn't the focus of my critique on Elon Musk, but I think that he's having an identity crisis that's coming out of dating Grimes. Grimes formerly had anti-imperialist on her Twitter profile. She's taken that down since they started dating. Right now, <laughs> I think they're sort of working out the boundaries between their own personalities and ideas. Ideologies and there's an interplay going on there in the 10 hours a week that Elon puts aside. <laughs> um, but <laughs> so I think I think what we're seeing, especially like the weird stuff recently on Twitter, I think is him trying to figure out his conception of himself in the light of his like romantic feelings for Grimes and the I'm guessing the things that he would kind of find exciting about her in some ways ideologically is that she comes from this really other perspective. So I think he's in this sort of like weird fluctuating identity zone that's coming out of this new relationship energy with a socialist arts weirdo. Mm. I think that's my theory of it mm. anyways. That makes total sense. It's just really interesting that he thinks that you can go on Twitter <laughs> and just say these things and you're not going to get 
immense pushback and people are constantly confronting him and, and he's, he gets in these things where he feels like he needs to respond and then he spirals down into these holes and people will just retweet him and mock him more. I just don't, I don't know if he understands really what he's getting into. He, has, he certainly has no conception of leftist politics, but I think you're right. He's trying to navigate that, that sort of dissonance between what he actually knows and how he's trying to view himself in relation to this new relationship that he has. But the whole thing is, is fascinating as, as it is absurd. And I don't know where, where it's going, but I'm excited to sit back and eat some popcorn and watch. <laughs> well, this actually, this comes from an idealistic utopian place to say, but if Elon Musk's ideology is up in the air and we don't know where Elon's going to land, we don't know exactly at the end of all this identity stuff, he might come out the other end with a really, really coherent and deep utopian anarchist socialist perspective. We don't know. We don't know. So if that's a possibility, and I think a lot of people are probably doing work on Twitter right now to make sure that this is a potential of happening. You know, I saw people responding to his tweet being like, oh, you're a socialist, read X. You know, oh, you're a socialist, watch this video because you're not a socialist. But if it's a possibility that his ideology is going to change by this, that we're going to come out the other end of this with a legitimately woke Musk. Now, Musk is going to see the error of his ways. In the event that this happens, and I'm not saying it's guaranteed, there's no determined path to history, but what if he did? (laughs) What can be done to encourage this to happen on one hand, but then also what can be done in the position of power that he holds? Because I think one of the things that we run into in critiques of capitalism is that sometimes we over-personify the problem. And it doesn't matter if it's Elon or not. Elon's a, a weird guy. He's got some weird views on women. He's got some weird views on all sorts of stuff. But even if you sub out Elon for someone else, the systemic problem that Elon's participating in still exists. So just as a thought experiment, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. Let's say that we get the best possible Elon Musk in that position. What's the best case scenario? Like, what could we hope for? What should we try to convince Elon is right with the hopes of it having material impacts on people's lives? Being in favor of unions, talking openly about receiving government subsidy is a good thing, and social funding is a driver of innovation. I don't know. I'm just, I'm thinking out loud. It's just sort of a weird... Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, th- I feel like my tendency is to think like, once you're a billionaire, it's very unlikely that you're going to arrive at very left-wing politics just because it's hard to overcome the sort of tendency to want to self-preserve all those billions you got. But what if you've been smooching a cute leftist cutie? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying it's huh? impossible. I'm just saying like <laughs> my mind doesn't me. go there because... I started kissing a cute billionaire capitalist. It's, it's hard to imagine what a woke socialist billionaire should do <laughs> if one were to spring into existence somehow. Yeah, I mean, I the, the actual material thing he could do is restructure his organization such that his workers get treated way better. They have a democratic say in how production goes, etc. But I think the big thing that, that he could do if in this hypothetical, absurd, <laughs> universal <laughs> possibility is that, you know, if, imagine if he used his platform not to promote this individualistic neoliberal technocratic ideology but if he used his platform instead to advocate for collective action for a fair distribution of wealth and resources if he talked about the advantages that he's been able to get and how we should work hard as a society to free people from the drudgery of, of wage labor or from poverty so that their minds and their creative energies can be unleashed on these problems You know, I always thought about this with Obama, right? Like Obama, like what's the best case scenario for Obama? Now, we we know that when he was president, he's a centrist liberal, etc. But what if he really was what the right called him, a Marxist, communist, socialist, right? What, What could he have done given the constraints 
that there is on the position of president of the United States. Well, the best thing he could have done is use his platform to call out the corruption and the horrible nature of the system from his position on top of it, right? If Obama got on TV, even after his presidency, and just started deconstructing the way that U.S. politics works, the way capitalism works, the way that he wanted to do certain things, but he was restrained by the deep state or whatever it may be, to use their platforms to talk like that would be in and of itself a fascinating experiment to see what that would do to public consciousness. You know, So I think the best thing we could ever hope for would be that he would actually treat his workers well and then he would use his platform to get away from this individualist, neoliberal way of viewing the world and start advocating for collective struggles and more democracy and more power in the hands of the people and more distribution of wealth and power. Yeah, I love that. Especially like the first steps, reorganize your company so there's more democratic workers control. People are paid better. You don't give them ice cream in exchange for not unionizing them. You let them unionize and you give them ice cream (laughs) (laughs) just as a starting point. I want to believe this is possible. You know, I understand that I'm definitely opening myself up to certain criticisms by saying that. But in The Art of War, one of the things that Sun Tzu says is always give your enemies a route to escape. Because if you back them up against the wall, they're going to get desperate, they're going to lash out, and you're going to see their like freak strength. He doesn't use those words, although he should. <laughs> um, but so like we got Elon up against the ropes. We've been going hard on him. We've been really laying into the problems of his ideology. And I just want to leave that little back door that little portal to him and also not rule out it as a legitimate possibility that he could be convinced somehow and that we could see a material effect of that. And so I feel like self-conscious saying that like I'm revealing myself as too naive. So Brett, please lay it on me. Why am I wrong? (laughs) Well, it's never, it's never going to happen um, (laughs) because as was mentioned earlier, the class position that you hold in society really dictates your ideas and restrains your imagination. And even if you're not consciously thinking about it, you're subconsciously always defending your position in that hierarchy. So just the the very nature of what role he plays in society, the very nature of his position as an owner of multiple companies, the very nature of him as a member of the bourgeoisie will, whether consciously or subconsciously, dictate and restrain his ability to think outside of the bounds of his class restrictions. So I would love to believe that maybe this could possibly be a situation only because the platform is so big that he, that if somebody with really good politics was in that position and had that platform, they could at least at least use their rhetoric to expand the political imagination of the American public. But ultimately, I'm, I'm a little more pessimistic. And I think that he will continue to serve what are his class interests. But doesn't Elon realize <laughs> that at the end of the day, if you really want to be the great man of history, you have to appear humble. He could be like, you know what? I'm really powerful. I'm a millionaire can have whatever I want in the world. The government's going to pay for my factories for me going forward. (laughs) But I'm also humble. I also believe the workers deserve fair wages. I'm so great. I've got such a big heart and big mind. I'm such a great man of history that I share the bounty. I share the bounty and I I amplify Revolutionary Left Radio on my Twitter. I amplify Seriously Wrong on my Twitter. (laughs) And this is part of why I'm so great and why I'm one of the most important people on the planet. And it's why I'm the alpha in the relationship is because I... I, (laughs) Because not only did I... I took a look at my class position. I said, hey, it would benefit me to obscure the depth of truth Mm -hmm. of these radical ideologies. 
but I'm bigger than that. So I'm going to amplify even ideologies that are a little bit in conflict with my actual material interests because I'm so much bigger than my material interests in history. I'm so important. Yeah, babe, Elon, if you're listening, oh, yeah, if any I'm of that hits listening. home to you and you just want to kind of wink and say, yeah, I agree with you guys, then definitely start retweeting RevLeft episodes. Start <laughs> retweeting our episodes. That That's step one. Yeah. If you do that, we'll get in contact definitely step with one. more steps. Because then everyone will know that you're actually a socialist. You're actually a space anarchist utopian. If you don't do that, then we know you're lying and then you're not a great man. Do it, Elon. Do it. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, this this has been a really fun conversation. We should do this again. I love talking to you, Brett. Absolutely. Yeah, let's let's continue to collaborate. I think um, we have an overlapping listenership now that we've collaborated a few times. And I think um, we have really fun time and we, we also bring different ideas to the table. And it's always fun to kind of bounce those ideas off each other and see what comes of it. So Thanks for having me on. It's it's always a blast with you guys. Uh, so, so and everyone uh, listening, if you haven't already checked out The Guillotine or Revolutionary Left Radio, two great podcasts, different feels, one from the heart, one from the mind, both important, part of a cohesive structure, part of a cohesive totality. I'd say your shows are cousins to Seriously Wrong or, or Neighbors. Absolutely. World's show to make you laugh. Rev Left is a show to make you think. And Guillotine is a show to make you cry. And you can do all three. You just, there That's you right. go. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to put it. Put one in each of your ears and listen all three at once. Elon. So you made it to the end of the episode. We thank you for it. Thank oh. you so much, Elon, for listening to the whole thing. I know that wasn't easy, but there were some important points there. We just have a few more quick pieces of advice that we want to toss your way. We greatly appreciate what you've put out on Twitter about being a socialist, about being a utopian anarchist, best described by Ian Banks. This is wonderful stuff. It's so great to see public figures committing to these ideas and then most importantly, following through on them materially. So if you want to be a socialist, we noticed a couple gaps and things you didn't say. You didn't mention housing, food, clean water, education and healthcare provided mm -hmm. for all regardless of the amount of money they have. That's a big one. You got to get on board with that right now. That's it, that's key. And I'm sure you know, we have enough for everyone in this world. We have enough for everyone in society. And too often, the people at the top, the rich, they get all these expansive privileges, while the people at the bottom, the downtrodden, they're deprived of their basic needs. And, and you as a public figure, you have a unique opportunity to step up to the plate, make sure that this message is centered, that people, housing is a human right. Everyone deserves food. Everyone deserves dignity. And we can structure society to allow people to thrive and contribute and have whole, full lives. You've already voiced some support for universal basic income. I say you need to ramp that up, support other universal universal basic services, all the things we just mentioned, more vacation pay, shorter work weeks, start with your own factories, give your employees three months vacation and three day work weeks. That would be a great start. People would love it. Thank you so much, Elon, for taking this message seriously and your commitment to becoming a utopian anarchist in a real sense, not in a fake. Signally yeah, weird. We, we know you're serious. About yeah, yeah. I want to assume the best. I really think you are going to deliver on this. So thank you for using your platform to talk about the basic needs and dignity of all human people and then putting some of your resources behind making that happen. Uh, we love you, Elon. Thanks so much. And now we go live to the office of the most important man on earth, Elon Musk, as he answers phone calls. This is how it's done. Take a listen. Lend an ear to old Elon in his office.
and send tweet. Hello, you're talking to literally one of the most important men on Earth, important men of history. How can I help you? Uh-huh. I would be happy to do an innovation session with you and your people. Perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so much for saying. I think it's a proportionate statement, but it is flattering. Okay, well, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, cheers. Hello? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Fire them all. Anyone organizing the union. Yeah, yeah, just fire them all. Threaten to take away the ice cream machine. That's socialism. Yeah. No, no, that is socialism. Oh, no, no, not, not, not volume two and three. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. Hello, you're talking to the man. Oh, hey, Grimes, yeah. Do we schedule a call right now? I've... Oh, no, no, it's okay. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Yeah, no, no, don't worry about it. No, 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 sweetie. It's okay. Yeah, 10 hours. Bye. Oh, Gareth, good to see you. My my hip web kid guy I pay. Elon. Teach me what that boy means. You don't need to know that. It's not current. So there's been another few think pieces about the production delays on the Tesla 3, people talking oh about the latest God. board meeting, Need to get a life. how people suggested that maybe the company should remove you or change your role. I'm telling you, man, we got to start our own newspaper. This left-wing podcast, they had some suggestions for you on how to be a better socialist, so I don't know if you want to listen. Fuck yeah, dude, I'm down with the Strug. Send that right over. You're down with the Strug? I'm yeah, totally were, down with the Strug. Yeah, they were wondering on the show whether you were down with the Strug. Okay, yeah, I'll no, send I, it Let to me you. say really clearly right now, I, Elon Musk, founder of Space sex son to two millionaires solemnly declare i am a socialist and i am down with the shrug i commit to all that entails 600 hours of content later i loved both of those shows i've listened to all of revolutionary left radio i listened to all of seriously wrong and then the content of my ideas changed and now i'm a different person i now see how my institutional role is a problem. It needs to be abolished or reconsidered deeply. I see that in order to really be down with the shrug, I need to not only let my workers unionize, but revolutionize new ways of democratizing my workplace. And the socialist project is going to require supercomputers that are able to allocate resources effectively in a way that takes care of everyone and ensures abundance. I'm going to have to move a bunch of my finances into figuring out systems to municipalize the economy digitally. Oh my God, I've got so much to work on. And I've, most of all, I've realized that women aren't things, they're people. And my role in society is to support and uplift people. It's not to rise above them. And I understand when I was a young kid, I had struggles and, and, and don't we all, but... <clears throat> oh, hey. Uh, uh, you got? I just noticed the sign saying your uh, headphones were finally taken out. You've had them in for 600 hours. Just wondering how things are going in here. Incredible, Gareth. I've completely changed my ideology up oh. to down. I'm just trying to figure out how I can move from the realm of idealism into the material, something I learned about recently, and make a meaningful impact with my powerful position in society towards universal human emancipation. 10,000 world years of world peace is what we're shooting for. Come here, Gareth. Sit down. Sit down. Sure. Oh, th yeah, thank you, sir. Would you like a glass of wine, brandy, got juice? <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, uh, the wine would be great. Thank you. Here, you like red? Whatever's handy. Yes. Yeah, I love red. So I just want to let you know, you know, you've always been sort of an underling, an assistant to me, like a little grub. Yes, man. Yes, and sir. I can tell you're a little confused right now. Been blasted with 600 hours of ace leftist content, and honestly, I'm acting weird. Is that fair to say? Sir, if you don't mind me saying, you're glowing in mm -hmm. a way I've never seen you glow before. Absolutely. What would you love to do most in the world, Gareth? Uh, if it, it were up to you, if you could do anything, what would you do? To be honest? Yeah. I want to write the world's first ballet opera. Here's $25,000 in cash. I want you to get out there, live your dreams, make sure there's strong socialist themes. Oh, of 
course, sir. Of course. So I guess in summary, do you want to... Let me just write this down on a piece of paper. We can both say this out loud and sort of start this next phase of our life together. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Elon Musk is just a human being like any of us. Not a great man. 10,000 years of space socialism will come. Thanks for your time and attention. Signed, Sean and Aaron, who are now out of character. The end. Next time on Seriously Wrong, we get old Elon into the special Wrong Boys movie theater, and we play him that entire David Foster Wallace clip that we played a bit of earlier in the episode. Hey, Elon, you ready? I'm going to play it. I'm going to press play on the projector. I hope you're ready. Pay attention to this, Elon. This is for you. This is about you. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you've really learned how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know you have other options. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Not that that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. This, I submit, is the freedom of real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And a compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. 
and the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course, there are all different kinds of freedom. And the kind that is most precious, you will not hear much talked about much in the great outside world of wanting and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, little, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness. The rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing.